0: Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Jose Azel, Ph.D., who is author of Mañana in Cuba. Today we will discuss his recently published book. Jose is dedicated to the in-depth analysis of Cuba's economic, social, and political state, with special interest in post-Castro-Cuba strategies. He is a senior scholar at the Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies ICCAS at the University of Miami. A native of Cuba, he left the island in 1961 when he was 13 years old as part of the Operation Pedro Pan, a child refugee program. He has been a guest on programs on Mega TV, PBS, America TV, Gen TV, France 24 TV and Al Jazeera among others. Jose, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Elena.
0: It's such an interesting topic, and I think that before we get into the thick of the book, if you would just help our audience and get a picture of what the situation is prior to the book, if you will. how How is it that Cuba has arrived at the state that it's in now? If you would just help us understand, what is the situation in Cuba today, and how did it get to be this way?
1: Well, the situation is desperate uh, in many different levels and and uh, part of what I try to do uh, with this book is describe in particular the state of Cuba's civil society. And it's essentially a civil society that has disappeared after 50 years of a totalitarian regime on the political side and a centrally planned command economy on, on the economic side. So uh, what we find is a, a civil society that uh, really would be unprepared for the demands of a democratic regime if Cuba if should take that path hopefully in the, in the near future and for the demands of, of a market economy. So uh, what we see is a, really a very difficult situation where people through no fault of their own, after having to deal for 50 years with with the rigors of such a system, have really lost uh, the ability to function as we understand how one uh, needs to function in democracy in terms of what are the duties, what are the responsibilities of a citizen in a democratic society. So we, we find that kind of situation in terms of the civil society, which in my mind is probably the most difficult to correct. And of course, a deplorable economic condition. Uh, Cuba has gone from um, being one of the wealthiest countries in the hemisphere in 1958, prior to, to Castro, to being uh, one of the poorest uh, today. Uh, the average uh, Cuban uh, income is approximately $17 per month. Um, and just as importantly, is a dysfunctional economy. It is one that simply does not work because it is based on, on centrally planned uh, systems. So um, we, we really are looking at a very difficult situation together with the fact that the uh, end of the Castro era uh, is, is nearing its end, if for no other reason, uh, other than biology will, 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 will prevail. Uh, Fidel Castro is 84, uh, at the time of, uh, at the moment, and his brother is a few years younger. So within the next five years or so, uh, at most, we are going to see a change, and, and the question then becomes, Do we see just a succession, like we have seen so far, from Fidel Castro to his brother Raul? Or will there be an opportunity for a real transition to another system, something similar to what we saw in the Eastern European countries uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union?
0: What is the size of the population on the island today, do you know?
1: It's it's about 11.3 million uh, Cuba, uh, in, in, on the island, and uh, approximately 2 million Cuban-Americans, depending how we define that terms, outside of Cuba. So you have a diaspora that is uh, probably close to 2 million plus the 11.3, 11.4 on the island. And it's an aging population, by the way. Uh, and, and significantly, uh, in terms of uh, the changes that have taken place over the last 50 years, it is a population that today is uh, about 62, 63 percent mulatto or Afro-Cuban, um, which uh, presents all kinds of transitional difficulties um, as as we try to to avoid some of the problems that we could see down the road.
0: In what ways would you say that the the situation that you described a moment ago, has impacted the mentality of the population. In other words, 50 years also means that people have grown up in the system and have learned the system as the only, for some people, way of life. How would you describe the mindset of the Cubans in Cuba today?
1: Well... I'll, I'll describe it along two different uh, lines. One is, is just to single out, and, and it really pains me as a Cuban-American uh, to say some of the things that I say in, in, in the book, because Cuban civil society today, uh, in order to survive, Cubans have developed a survival ethic. Um, the term that we use is resolver. You, know, you have to resolve. You have to figure out how to make ends meet every single day. And in order to accomplish that, Cuban civil society has learned to lie, to cheat, to steal as a matter of survival, uh, for everyday survival. So in that sense, we're going to find that kind of survival ethic, that kind of mentality that is not accustomed to following the rule of law so that's one of the aspects that is going to be extremely difficult uh, uh to to correct uh, much harder in my mind that than the economic parameters that can be attacked fairly straightforward but more importantly or perhaps just as importantly is the is the the mental model if you will that describes the relationship between a people and its government in, 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 in a democratic society, uh, the model is one that operates from the bottom up. That is to say, changes in our society originate with the people. We, we decide what we want, what kind of government and what kind of policies we may want. And according to that, we elect leaders that mirror what, what it is that we want. So it's a bottom up type of uh, model describing that relationship. In a totalitarian society, the model is totally the opposite. Uh, changes only originate and always originate at the top, and then they come down. It's a command system. So Cubans have absolutely no idea, no concept that they as a people, as a civil society, can impact anything. And uh, they will wait, and that's one of the passivity that we see uh, in the Cuban population Uh They're trained to wait because changes originate with the government. You have to wait for the government to make the changes. You as a citizen do not have anything to do with it. Um, It is almost, uh, and I I use the description somewhat loosely, but it's almost like like a Stockholm Syndrome in terms of the Cuban population being kept captive for for 50 years. So um, that mentality that has developed one, of a survival ethic, and two, of waiting for changes to come from above. Um, is traumatic. And and finally, when faced with danger, you know, uh, psychologists will will tell us that when we face danger, our our reaction is one, to fight or flight, uh, as as we understand that in uh, in the United States. I I think Cuba has reformulated that to, with face with dangers, they will conform or flee. They will either conform to whatever is happening, or they will take take to the seas, which is obviously one of the dangers of, of uh, uh, Cuba falling into into being a failed state and having a mass migration, uh, analogous to what we saw in 1980, during the Mariel lift during the Balceros in 1990s. So uh, it's it's really a uh, a very dynamic situation that, that we're seeing emerging uh, economically it's, it's, it's deplorable uh, it's, it's just no economic solution under the present system and not in sight
0: Have you had an opportunity to visit the island since you left in 1961?
1: No I, 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 I um, will not do so I, I think uh, in very general terms and, and I don't criticize anybody that does, but I left the island as a political exile. And, and by definition, a political exile is one that um, does not return until the conditions that brought about his or her exile disappear. And in my mind, if I were to return to Cuba, then my status would not be that of a political exile, it would be much more that of an immigrant uh, Besides, I have been very active in anti-Castro uh, writings and uh, things like that for 50 years. So I don't think I'm going to be very welcome at all. In fact, I know I'm not.
0: In other words, if you did go to Cuba, it would be potentially dangerous for you.
1: Oh, they will not. They will. First of all, they will not allow me in. Cuba will not ever grant me the permit to 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 in. And, and yes, it would be extremely dangerous for me.
0: In what way, then, if you have not been on the island, our readers are curious to know, I'm sure, have you garnered the picture of the current situation on the island? Obviously, you've met with people who have been there and exiles. Would you tell us a little bit about that process?
1: Well, as part of the Institute for Cuban and Cuban-American Studies here at the University of Miami, one of the things that, that we do, of course, is we interview uh, recent arrivals uh, uh, constantly, uh, young people, Cubanos de a pie, you know, everyday people, as well as uh, defectors from the government. So we are continuously uh, interviewing uh, uh, recent arrivals. And, and of course, we do monitor uh, to the degree that we always can um, situations on the island. You know, as a social scientist, you don't necessarily have to be uh, on site to be able to make assessments uh when when history is written you know we, we rarely do we have to be on site so we have a very very good handle uh, by interviews of of people uh, living and uh, constantly uh, we do this
0: one of the things that you talk about in the book i think it's chapter 2 is the china model what are you referring to that when you talk about the china model syndrome
1: well um Twenty years ago, uh, we really had absolutely no idea how a country can transition from totalitarianism and centrally planned economies to a market economy and and democracy. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we now have in the former Eastern European states some 32 countries that have, uh, some successfully, some not, made a transition, and we can expand on that uh, as well. When people talk in terms of the Chinese model or the Vietnamese model, we're talking about two uh, countries uh, somewhat differently, but China in particular, that have made profound, relatively profound changes in the economic sphere. They have adopted market mechanisms economically but have not done the same on the political sphere. In other words, they have limited their changes only to the economic side and not to the political side. The, the end result is that China today, after almost 30 years of relatively uh, profound economic changes, is without a doubt wealthier as a country, but it is not in any way I mean, people are still living under a totalitarian regime. So, my, uh, my argument in that sense is that uh, some people argue that economic changes lead inexorably to political changes. And the evidence is, is, does not support that since China uh, is still a totalitarian regime, and the same applies to Vietnam. That has also introduced market economy. So, uh, I try to uh, to make the point that democracy, political changes, are not an ornament, are not something that one uh, puts at the end of an economic reform program. That democracy uh, and the democratic institutions are something that must be instituted uh, very early on in a reform process in fact, in advance of economic changes or at least hand-in-hand with economic changes. When we look at the uh, history of the transitioning companies in Eastern Europe, what we find, and and the parallels are not something that we can uh, extrapolate to Cuba uh, because there are obviously different cultures, different political situations, and so on, but the one common denominator that we find is that those countries that made democratic changes right away, uh, the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, Estonia, have been the countries that have succeeded in today being both most prosperous as well as, as, as democratic, those countries that sort of took the path of, well, you know, let us uh, begin by making economic changes and we'll worry about uh, democracy down the road. Those countries have invariably failed in, in, in both areas. So, uh, What I try to develop is the argument that democracy is much more than a way of selecting our leaders. Democracy is something that guides us in, in the way that we... Interact uh, between government and society, and it's essential for prosperity. It is not ornamental.
0: Now, how does that work for those people, let's say, less familiar with the history of Cuba? And we may have many among our listeners. They, of course, have heard of Fidel Castro and now his brother, Raul Castro, and Cuba has been under the totalitarian regime for so many years. But at the same time, they may be thinking to themselves, well, what does this got to do with the United States? And in what way does it affect our country? Why should we be involved? What would you say to those listeners who are wondering, okay, well, this is something that happened and, and it's bad and it's sad, and maybe it's going to change when Fidel Castro passes on and, and/ or his brother. But in what way does this relate to the United States, and should we get involved? Perhaps is the question in many people's minds. What would you say?
1: Well, I, I would think the United States involvement should be one of always championing, democracy and i and i try to stay away from us foreign policy arguments because uh it's it's something that it's, it's at the margin of what we're talking about but in terms of the united states i think when it comes to cuba is to champion political rights civil liberties for the cuban people not to accept a a totalitarian uh regime Throughout the last 50 years, Cuba has been, not necessarily today because the economic situation has obviously changed since the collapse of the Soviet Union, but Cuba has been actively fighting against United States' interest in Africa and Latin America, exporting revolution, you know, all through the 70s and, and 80s, so uh, Cuba has been uh in all practical ways an enemy of the United States and and remains so although it no longer has the economic ability to do that but from the point of view of the United States of course there is the so called embargo in place and all this kind of thing but at the end of the day uh, it is in the best interest of the United States and particularly of Floridians to make sure that Cuba uh, prospers at some point and becomes a democratic uh market oriented, prosperous economy, uh if for no other reason that to avoid a mass migration uh of, of, of impoverished Cubans that that will take to the seas if there is a failed state that develops in the in the coming years as the Castro brothers uh leave the, the scene. Um you know, some people argue that, well, um, you know, we do business with China, that is a totalitarian regime, why cannot we do business with, with Cuba? And of course there's many reasons for that, but the fact remains that, uh, for the last 30 years or so, our foreign policy in Latin America, not throughout the world, but at least in this hemisphere, has been one of supporting democracy and supporting human rights and supporting civil liberties and political rights. And it would be somewhat uh, strange for the United States to say, okay, we have insisted on all civil rights and democracy and, uh, and so on and so forth uh, for all of the other countries, but in the case of Cuba, we're not. We're going to accept uh, you know, the, a regime that abuses human rights, and Cuba has. The largest number of political prisoners in the hemisphere and, and I think next to China, is in the world. So um, we, it is in our best interest to see in the long term a democratic market oriented Cuba.
0: The title of your book, Mañana in Cuba, are you referring to what is going to happen or what you think might happen as in fact the Castro brothers move off the scene?
1: Well, I I try not to uh, do too many uh, crystal ball type of exercises, and and, and the title refers to the possible paths that that we'll take. And uh, the book is a little bit hard to categorize because it's a little bit of history, a little bit of political science, a little bit of philosophy, psychology, sociology, uh, just very multidisciplinary, which I think reflects my, my own thinking. But what I try to do in this book, Elena, is understand what it is that we are going to find in Cuba in terms of a deplorable economic condition and a civil society that is really unprepared uh, for democratic governance and accept that as a given. And that's what we're going to find. And, and then try to figure out, given that, what policies could a future Cuban government uh, put into place to, uh, and I use the term nudge, uh, because I, I borrow that from, from a book by that title, and I borrow some of their, their thinking, um, to nudge the citizenry, and the government into better make, uh, making better decisions as citizens and and as a government. So uh, it's sort of saying uh, this is what we're going to find: what kind of policies would work for Cuba, given its history, given its uh, idiosyncrasies of the Cuban. And I have a. Uh, a couple of chapters there, one that says, you know, carajo, somos como somos, which is, you know, we are the way we are, and, and we are impatient, and we're irrelevant, and, and uh, you know, we, there are certain characteristics of the Cuban nature that, that I try to address and say, given this, uh, what policy, and then I came across this, this literature, if you will, uh, or sort of like a sub-discipline of, of economics called behavioral economics, where um, uh, concepts such as what, what is called choice architecture are being used today. And I sort of started thinking, how can these modern concepts of choice architecture be put into place to to nudge or to incline um a population and, and an inexperienced government into making better decisions. And, you know, I can give you some examples on how we do that. Yes, of course. Well, um, I, I, let me just borrow again from, from the authors of this uh, choice architecture type of thinking, and and then I'll apply it to Cuba. But I'll give you just a couple of examples of what it is that I'm talking about uh, in, in a more gener- generic way. Um by the way the, the, the this kind of thinking is being described as libertarian paternalism which is almost an oxymoron it's a contradiction in terms but it is libertarian in the sense that no freedoms are ever removed but paternalistic in the way that we sort of try to again nudge people into making better decisions let us let us uh, suppose uh, that that uh, uh, we decide, uh, I don't know, as a society, that we want our, our children to eat healthier foods. And that, uh, as a result, in the, I don't know, middle school cafeteria line, we display the healthier food offerings, the apples and the bananas and the fruits, more prominently uh, right at the beginning of the line, very attractively displayed. And then we put the candy bars towards the end of the line, perhaps a little bit harder to reach. Uh, out there. Uh, that would be a nudge. We're using the display in this case to nudge the, the children into taking the apples and the bananas and, and, and not taking the candy bars. We're not removing the candy bars, but that would be a nudge. Um, I'll give you two, two more quick examples. Uh, we know, for example, in the United States that uh, there is a tremendous waiting line for organ donations, a uh, waiting list, as you say, and and we know that organ donations in case of a, an accidental death uh, or, uh, save lives, and many of us, uh, and I will include myself in that category, in informal conversations uh, with, with uh, friends or, or family members, we we sort of express, you know, should I die in an automobile accident or something, I would love to be an organ donor and that sort of thing, but we fail to take the steps necessary. And in the United States, we are presumed not to be an organ donor unless we have taken the step to inscribe ourselves in our driver's license says that we are an organ donor. So most of us um, end up not being donors because something happens and the family doesn't want to make that decision or what have you. In some European states, they have changed the default. The, the, the law has become that you are presumed to be an organ donor unless you send an email or make a phone call saying, I don't want to be one, and you sort of pull yourself out of the system. So by changing the default, the amount of organ donations has increased dramatically, and of course, the, the result... Uh, resulting in a savings of lives. That's a nudge. That is a way of changing a default. No liberties are removed. You can opt in or opt out, but you have changed the default. That is choice architecture techniques. Uh, I'll give you one more. That's kind of a funny example, but but I think it illustrates the point. It turns out that in, uh, in a man's airport bathroom in uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, they were having a... Uh, I guess a pretty bad sanitation problem, men uh, were urinating outside the urinals. They were missing. And uh, they, they were trying to figure out how to get the men to, to aim properly, I suppose. And, you know, one, the totalitarian solution, uh, is probably the Cuban solution, would be to put two policemen there, making sure that everybody... Well, somebody came up with the idea of painting or etching a black fly on each of the urinals. Now, it turns out that we aim at the black fly, and that completely solves the problem of men uh, peeing in place correctly. So, by etching a black fly, the pro- that is a notch. By the way, when I mentioned this example uh, recently in a book presentation, someone <laughs> said, in the, in the case of Cuba, you need to replace the fly, the fly with a picture of Fidel Castro, and everybody will aim perfectly. and and that's probably true so those are nudges and and that's a fairly new uh, discipline uh, out there so I started thinking in terms of how to use that uh, to uh, again to nudge uh, a citizenry uh, and a government into making better decisions and that's how I developed those arguments in the second part of the book
0: who is the book for? who did you write this book for?
1: Um, I had two audiences in mind. One audience in, in my mind was, and of course I will have to get the book translated into Spanish because I wrote it in English, would be young Cuban intellectuals in the island that will someday say, uh, "Wow, you know, there's just some ideas that, that could be put into place," uh, but also the Cuban American community and and, and and anyone interested in Cuba, because. Uh, Again, some of these principles are applicable to any situation. Uh, what I talk about in terms of Cuba, uh, a U.S. Uh, government official could be thinking in terms of Afghanistan or in terms of Iraq, any of those situations where we're trying to, to help a society uh, that is really unprepared for some of the exigencies of democracy. So, there's all kinds of audiences, uh, in my mind, uh, the young Cuban intellectuals or or anyone that may one day be involved in policymaking uh, along these lines.
0: Yesterday, I announced to some of our audience that you and I were going to be chatting today on the podcast, and I invited them to share some questions for you, and so I have a couple to share with you, if you would indulge us. Absolutely. Absolutely. and, of course, they relate to the topic of the book. The, uh, the first one, and this is from Joe, is when Fidel dies, how will the Cubans in Cuba respond?
1: Well, that, that is, of course, an unknown. Um, when Fidel dies, the most likely scenario right now is that Raul Castro will be able to succeed and maintain control. He doesn't have the charisma or the intelligence that his older brother, but for 50 years he's he's been chief of the armed forces. He has the guns. Um, But Raul is also elderly, and the appointed successor after that is a fellow by the name of Machado Ventura, who is also 80-something, and then another fellow by the name of Ramiro Valdez, who is also in that age bracket. My sense... Uh, and again this will be a crystal ball exercise, is that what we will see will be something very similar to what we saw in Russia uh, some years ago that we had about three elderly leaders passing away every year or so until a Gorbachev, a reformer, finally emerged uh, that was really not in anyone's radar screen. So my sense is Fidel will die, Raul will die, Machado Ventura, Ramiro Valdez, and maybe there is a young colonel or young officer somewhere that in one of those iterations will emerge as a reformer. Uh, the Cuban people, again, what I said earlier, are for the most part complacent in the sense that they expect changes to come from above. Uh, so I don't expect... Uh, anything like an uprising or something like that, if the economic conditions continue to deteriorate and we see something approaching a famine, then what you may see is people taking to the seas, and and that obviously has all kinds of U.S. policy implications.
0: And that's a good segue for the next question that Joe had, which is, do you expect that the Cuban exiles that are now living in the United States will return en masse to try to reclaim their property?
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, you know, the Cuban exile community is not a monolith, and the, the, we can actually identify certain wages, Those of my generation that, you know, left earlier, we have made our lives outside the United States. Uh, I have absolutely no desire, I'll speak for myself, of going back and reclaiming any properties uh, or doing anything. uh, If I am allowed to serve in in an unpaid capacity of any kind, I would love to contribute whatever skill sets I may have to the reconstruction of my homeland. And I think people in my generation, feel along those lines, you know, if we're allowed to and we're permitted to contribute whatever skill sets we may have, architecture, engineering, legal, what have you, uh, to the reconstruction, I think we're willing to do that. The other uh, generations that, that left uh, even recently are much more economic immigrants and, and, than, than political exiles. Um there is no uh, by the way and why I, I do touch on this topic in, in the book when it comes to property rights and, and things like that you know how those issues can be addressed and, and again we, we have access to some of the experiences of the Eastern European countries and uh, uh, no one wants to uh, uh, recuperate a you know a dilapidated house or some of the businesses for example that would have huge, uh, environmental liabilities uh, they're not interested in that at all or machinery that is 50 years old or anything like that so the Cuban American community by and large would want to play a constructive role uh, but not one of um, vengeance or, or, or anything like that
0: Do you believe that the United States will lift the travel and trade restrictions in, to Cuba during the Obama administration?
1: I I would hope that that depends on the Cuban government. Uh, I I am not uh, against making changes, but I would hope those changes are made in response to changes in Cuba. I I don't think we want to or we should make unconditional uh, changes unilaterally. I would love for us to be able to make changes if Cuba does some very low-cost things. Release 200 political prisoners. If Cuba would only do that, just release 200 political prisoners, then we could take the next step. Absolutely. And engage in a quid pro quo. But not to give away all of our foreign policy tools without anything in return. I, I think As a part of a negotiated process, absolutely, but not unilaterally, unconditionally, because then what happens is we have no chips in our pocket to play. And again, at some point, not the Castro brothers, but at some point, I would hope there emerges in Cuba a Gorbachev, some kind of reformer. And we want to be able to nudge that reformer into making better policies and, and in order to do that we must have some negotiating chips in our pocket
0: Pam at what your thoughts are on blogger Yoni Sanchez and the treatment received by the authorities um, and what online media means for Cuba. So I guess it's two different questions that she's asking here. So let's talk about the blogger's treatment first. Well,
1: I I respect and admire Joanne uh, immensely. In fact, I I, I sent her a copy of my book. I don't know if uh, uh, she's received it or or whether she can uh, read English uh, uh, as well. Uh, I respect her courage. Uh, She's a courageous young woman, uh, a a very articulate and almost poetic writer. I cite her in the book uh, quite a few times. Um, And I admire her courage. Um, And that is part of a very small emerging civil society. What is interesting, though, is that when you look at Internet access in Cuba, uh, less than 2% of the people have access to Internet. I think it's estimated about 1.7% of the population have access to Internet, and those are government officials. So Joanne is... By far, no more outside of Cuba than inside Cuba. Very few people outside of Havana have any clue who Giovanni Chances is. So uh, she's known outside uh, more than more than inside. But her courage and, and uh, Claudia Cadelo de Neve, there are a number of other bloggers of that emerging civil society. And it's interesting because these are children of the revolution. These are young people that were born in that system, have experienced nothing else and yet they realize uh, the importance of freedom.
0: I think that second part of the question is, what do you think that online media means for Cuba in terms of how it's opening up its society to the outside world?
1: Well, again, I think it is an incredible tool, but Cubans don't have access to it. Only 1.7% have access to to the Internet, uh, Cubans are very resourceful, and they're trying to, you know, figure out ways, but it's just not available in in, in the island. Uh, so it, it would be an enormously useful tool. We saw the role that this played in Iran recently, for example, with with Twitter and and in the communications that that they were able to mobilize in in Iran, but but that's just not something that Cubans have access to in, in, in large numbers at this time.
0: Let's take a look a little bit at the business side of things, because of course many of our listeners are executives and business people. What is, I know that you talked about the, the overall infrastructure and the state of society on the island, but would you zoom in a little bit on to the business aspects that are in place on the island today? and um, maybe we can talk a little bit about what you foresee in the future as things change.
1: Yeah, I, I, in fact, that, that happens to be one of my fields. My my MBA and my PhD are on in an international business, so I, I, I do advise uh, companies along these lines qu- quite a bit. Um, well, the, the first point to make is that there will be enormous business opportunity in Cuba, provided that, the political changes are in place. Right now, that is not the case. Right now, you have a government that can act capriciously and arbitrarily at any given time and just do whatever they want to do. In fact, they recently confiscated all the bank accounts of the uh, Spanish and European uh, companies that were operating in Cuba. They decided they needed the money, so they decided to just take over the bank accounts, and, and that's it. So you have to have a rule of law. You have to have an independent legal system that can adjudicate disputes. So um, the, what is needed then, of course, is a democracy or a democratic type of regime where uh, you can invest and reduce uh, those kinds of political risks. When I look at uh, foreign direct investment. Obviously, there are two kinds of uh, business opportunities in in general terms. we can talking about exporting to Cuba, and clearly Cuba is going to need just about any conceivable product or service you can think of, just about anything. But exporting to Cuba is, is one avenue that is fairly low risk, provided you can get paid, obviously. Investing in Cuba, putting money on the ground I think early on we would probably be limited to what we call resource-seeking type of investments, investments that go there because of a particular resource. Uh, Tourism would be one because obviously the beautiful beaches, baradero and and, and others, uh, some agriculture, nickel, uh, petroleum exploration, and a a handful of other resource-oriented type of investments. So that, those investments will, will definitely, uh, uh follow again if there is a, a transition, uh, that is moving towards a market economy. Investments of what we call efficiency seeking type, investments looking to lower labor costs and, and, uh, you know, a privileged distribution point, those I do not see, uh, in the early years simply because I don't think Cuba will have the kind of disciplined labor force that you can find in the People's Republic of China or, or elsewhere, Cuba will not have a comparable uh, advantage uh, in terms of offering a low labor force. It will be a very undisciplined labor force, one for the reasons that we noted very earlier in, in the program that uh, have not developed those kinds of, uh, of attitudes towards work. And the third kind is the market-seeking type of investments, investments that you would put on the ground to satisfy the local needs. And although Cuba is not an insignificant market, it's in a market of over 11 million people, it is an impoverished market. So I think that would proceed gradually rather than than aggressively. Um, In terms of market entry strategies, I think companies will choose to export first before they decide to manufacture in Cuba for Cuban consumption. Um, I argue, for example, uh, uh, going back to to these nudging things, that a future Cuban government that is truly interested in attracting foreign direct investments into Cuba, which I think is absolutely necessary, should very well consider dollarization of the Cuban economy because dollarization of the Cuban economy has a number of benefits, but from the point of view of foreign direct investors, it, of course, it eliminates the currency risk and the risk associated with devaluations of currency and, and things like that. So if we see changes of that uh, category, then I think the opportunities will be enormous.
0: You talk about the Big Bang Argument. What are you referring
1: to? Well, in in the Eastern European countries, uh, keep in mind right now that in Cuba, everything belongs to the state. There's no private property. There's not a private barbershop. There's no private ownership of, you know, a grocery store or anything. Everything belongs to the government. Private property as such is is, is outlawed. One of the uh, Debate in some of the Eastern European countries was whether to privatize things very quickly, in other words, just completely sell off all of the state property to 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 the people or to foreign investors to uh, very aggressively, uh, or to go more gradually and go in certain stages, and then you have a question of how do you privatize it? Do you use vouchers? that you know, give vouchers to the people that they can use to buy and, and all kinds of, of um, technical aspects that, that, that uh, go into that, and, and I cover a few in, in the book. Um, the other approach is to go slow. My, my uh, intuition is that somewhat a combination, that I think Cuba should immediately privatize everything that is a small enterprise to release the energies of the Cuban people, to release the entrepreneurship of the Cuban people. You know, any small businesses, by all means, privatize everything immediately, just give it away to the people, let people become entrepreneurs and owners and and, 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 and do their own thing right off the bat, but take a little bit more time in privatizing the large state-owned enterprises like the power company, the utilities. Uh, telephone and things like that, because there's a lot of corruption that gets associated with that. If you do it very quickly, if you don't have all the right tools in place, you want to have a, a very transparent bidding process. You want to be able to assess the right value. And uh, you know, when people uh, we look at Russia for example, uh, an example of, of how bad things can go. Uh, I think about two years ago, Forbes magazine published an article in which it noted that Russia, at the time of the article, um, which was about 16, 17 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia at that time had the second largest number of billionaires in the world, second only to the United States, surpassing countries like Germany. Now. You look at that and you say, in 16 years, how could that possibly be? Either Russians are the most brilliant entrepreneurs in the history of humanity, or they stole everything. And when you look at these billionaires, you find a lot of ex-KGB members. So one of the dangers is that if you have economic changes taking place without democratic institutions without a very aggressive, investigative, free press that want to stick its nose everywhere and and examine and investigate and and so on and so forth. What you may end up with is not a democracy, but uh, what we call a kleptocracy, uh, a state state of thieves. And uh, we wouldn't want that. We don't want a kleptocracy. We want, hopefully, a transition to a democracy and not something you know, like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves.
0: Now, that makes me think about the transition that you're talking about. How do you move a society, assuming that the country decides that they want to move away from the totalitarianism that is in place, toward something a little more, a little less totalitarian, let's call it that. How do you transition the people from their current mindset into an entrepreneurial mindset because that, of course, is a complex process. It's a way of thinking that is so alien in many ways to the way that things are now.
1: Well, and that is precisely the the challenge that that I tackle in in, in the book, uh, Elena. Uh, For example, on the political side, I propose for Cuba that whoever is in charge, whenever that future Cuban government comes into play, that they consider, and this is kind of a, uh, I do this as a polemicist because I want to sort of get the debate out there, that they consider a parliamentary type of system. Now, parliamentary systems are really not uh, well known in in Latin America with obviously the exception of the Caribbean islands in all of the Latin American countries have traditionally adopted presidential systems uh, following the United States lead of of a presidential system. So I'm saying Cuba's future government should consider a European type of parliamentary system. And my, my thinking in the book is Not that a parliamentary system may be superior to a presidential system or anything like that. That argument has been going on for 200 years. I'm certainly not going to solve it in 200 pages, or 20 pages for that matter. But only because it offers certain ways that would nudge the Cuban people into better decision making. Uh, You know, in a presidential system, uh, we have been very impatient. We elect a president in Cuba. Uh, you know, for four years, what the term was, and if we don't like, and we do this all in Latin America, we don't like what's going on, we we want to change president two years into the term, we have a coup d'etat, we have un golpe de estado. We're not prepared to wait until the next election. Well, a parliamentary system has the virtue that if you want to change governments every week, you can do so by a vote of no confidence. But at least you're doing so legally under the constitution, so it addresses that kind of impatience. It also has the virtue that uh, it, it makes a distinction between the head of government, which can be a very boring guy that is, you know, the guy that makes sure the trains run, run on time, that you know worries about the budget and, and the day-to-day operations, the, the chief operating officer, if you will, to use the business terminology, and then you have. Um, Uh, the head of state that could be in charge of foreign policy or, or what have you. So what I try to tackle is precisely what kind of policies may indeed be useful to address the issue that you raised.
0: At the front of the book, you have the University of Miami logo. And it says, Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies, University of Miami, Coral Gables, Florida. Why is that?
1: Well, uh, about 10 years ago, Dr. Jaime Sushliki, who is a, is a brilliant uh, Cuban scholar, uh, started this Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies uh, here at the University of Miami. Uh, we are a think tank. We are fundamentally a think tank focused on uh, Cuba issues and Cuban American issues, uh we have a number of projects. Uh, one is called the Cuban Transition Project, where scholars write about uh, policy issues for future Cuba, economic changes, uh, what would be the, the constitutional arrangements that may work. So it is fundamentally a think tank of, of some uh, a handful of uh, senior scholars that, that think about this and uh, you know, we try to advise um, government agencies and in their policy makings and we also outreach to the community. We have all kinds of uh events here almost every week. We have uh book presentations or or uh discussions. I just finished teaching yesterday uh a summer course uh with the title of uh Cuba Past, Present and Future, which was extremely well attended. Um, Again, talking about you know Cuba's past and Cuba's present and what could be the future. So we do a lot of those community teaching, uh, research, writing activities.
0: Is the book an official book of? The University of Miami Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies. What's the relationship, in other words?
1: No, no, no. I, you know, we're all independent scholars, and you know, there, there is no policy position of the institute. We all think independently. We all have our own views. In fact, we don't normally agree on, on very little. No, no. This is all, This is my own effort. Um, you know, we have different scholars with different points of view. Uh, Dr. Suslicki, as I mentioned, that is a historian. Uh, Dr. Andy Gomez, for example, focuses on, on education and civil society. Uh, I come from the business community. I was a chief financial officer of a, uh, large publicly traded company. Uh, so i come from the business community. Um, in fact, uh, I, I do this, uh, pro bono. I, uh, Dr. Suslicki about 20 years ago di- directed my, uh, doctoral dissertation uh actually about 25 years ago and about 3 years ago he called me and says uh Jose I need you I uh, I need you to come work I was retired happily retired he says you know I need you to come work uh I can't pay you anything but uh I need someone with your background uh, in business and academics to come and help us with uh, some of the the economics and and uh, so here I am so we all have our own views, our own backgrounds, our own areas of expertise. So this is just my private effort. In fact, this is a book that I have financed personally and I'm uh, trying to get translated into Spanish and uh, because my goal is for this to circulate in Cuba. The proceeds of the book I am donating, every, all the proceeds, all the author royalties, I am donating to the Institute for Cuban and Cuban American sc- uh, Studies. So I have no financial interest in, in, in that other than to help the Institute.
0: What two or three suggestions would you share with our listeners that can help them?
1: In in terms of books or in terms of uh, uh, how to go about it? or
0: Yes, what can they do? For those of our listeners who are interested in learning more about Cuba and about mañana in Cuba, what's going to happen or what might happen to Cuba in the future, what three suggestions would you share with them about things that they can do?
1: Well, uh, there's uh, a couple of things that, that come up uh, uh, to mind. Uh, we have a, a webpage at the Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies where we publish uh, a, a very, very large number of weekly or articles, or some very scholarly, some very popular. So one of the things I would suggest is, you know, get, in, get on the ICAS mailing list. Uh, so you, are, you receive all of our publications. Uh, and you receive notifications of, of, the events that take place here at the Institute and they're, they're all, uh, typically they're all free uh, at no cost. So getting into the ICAS mailing list or, or the ICAS uh, Facebook page, uh is, uh, is, one thing. Also accessing our webpage because there are a number of publications there that are listed. Uh, in terms of, of the future, uh, my book is, uh, it's probably one of the few offerings where uh, I look at a little bit of the history, a little bit of what it is that we're going to find objectively, and how the changes may come about. Um, there is, uh, Elena, a very uh, vast literature on the transition, it's actually it's called transitology, it's almost like a field and its so own right now, in the last 20 years, and I sort of distill that literature in a couple of par- in a couple of uh, chapters, uh, how transitions can come about. Uh, in the case of Cuba, for example, I would venture to say that it has to be from the top down. That is not going to be one that originates with the people necessarily. It's going to have to probably uh, be one that originates at some point with the military because the. The FAR, the the, uh, military forces in in Cuba, is about the only game in town. So I I, probably in terms of a a shortcut to to a vast literature, I think Mañana in Cuba is probably a good bet.
0: And where can our audience get uh, the the book? Is it available nationwide?
1: It's available online through Amazon and Barnes & Noble are uh, both uh, online. Uh, locally it's available at Books and Books in Coral Gables and I think Miami Beach as well as, uh, University Universal on 8th Street. But, uh, the best bet is online. I, I think that's, uh, uh, that's the best bet. It's available in hardback and, and, uh, paperback as well and also in the Kindle edition in Amazon.
0: Thank you, Jose, for joining us from Miami, Florida.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Elena. It's been a pleasure, and I hope uh, you know I can answer all the questions as we go along uh, in the future from your readers and uh, your listeners.
0: Anytime you want to come back and talk about the topic a little bit more, you're more than welcome to. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Jose Acel, Ph.D., author of Mañana in Cuba. Today we discussed his recently published book.